Good morning, everybody. Just making sure. Can you hear me all the way in the back if I put the microphone over here? Good, good, good. Well, on Saturday, we're talking about Saturday, I went to get an iPhone case. I wanted a particular brand, and they said, this is the only color we have left. <clears throat> yeah. Nothing like in-state tuition that makes that uh, tolerable. So, <clears throat> very, yeah, big day. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. Last week, of course, we did the first 12 verses of this passage. This chapter, this last, or this last section of 1 Thessalonians 4 is very important to me as a pastor because I read this passage at the graveside of every Christian I lay to rest. I started doing it when I became a pastor 30-some years ago, and I have never quit because there's no more appropriate passage, at least that I can come up with in that very sacred and solemn uh, service of committing a body to the ground, waiting the resurrection. And the old folks, the old saints, called this passage a reference to the blessed hope. The blessed hope. Uh, by that they mean... They're intentional about saying the blessed hope. It's not a hope. It's the only hope for eternal life, the, the promise of eternal life for the body of a Christian. And it's the blessed hope. It is infallible, uh, infallible hope because it is blessed by God. When something in the Bible is blessed... It doesn't mean, um, as we do in the South, bless your heart, which is, I'm not sure whether I like you or not, but uh, might as well say something nice. When God blesses, He conveys spiritual favor. And uh, in the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking. You know, I hope my team wins again this week. It is certainty. It is foundational. It's infallible. So what we're about to read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, is the, the only, blessed of God, divinely assured hope of eternal life for the believer dying in Christ. So with hearts ready to be stirred by a hope that is deeper than any pain and more profound even than death, let's read verses 13 to 18. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him 
those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we stand on holy ground. Every square inch of this world is holy. But we especially feel it when we come before your word. And we should feel it every time we come before your word. But we especially feel it today when we talk about a promise made by you, an assurance given by you to us about what happens to loved ones and what will happen to us who are in Christ. We pray it would indeed encourage us as the passage promises. Well, some of my brothers still feel very freshly the losses they have experienced. Others of my brothers here, <clears throat> others within the sound of my voice in the future, will have received uh, terminal diagnoses. And the prospect of death is a frightening one for us in our flesh because it's unknown territory. We grieve what we'll leave behind. Uh, others, Lord, uh, it, it uh, must move us all to realize that there are those we will encounter today who will, for whom this promise will either be encouraging or damning. Every person we meet will either go to heaven or hell someday. And so we pray that we, yes, we would relish in this promise. We would, we would encourage one another with it, but we also pray it would move us to be loose with our lips uh, in witnessing to those around us who do not know Christ. And this, would be, this text would be fresh on our hearts and minds today, and we could, we could put it in front of them as the good news that is offered to those who die in Christ. So, Lord, we ask that on this holy ground you would meet us the Holy Spirit would enable us, would help us to listen carefully as disciples, not forgetting what we've seen, but transform us with it. In Jesus' name we pray it, and God's men said together, amen. amen. Paul, as you know by now, is writing to a body of believers who are, there are Jews among them, but they are mostly Gentile and 
they are Jew and Gentile living in uh, a very pagan, unbelieving, uh, hopeless culture. Uh, a city and a culture uh, dotted with idols, vainly looking for gods to trust in. Everybody knowing about death and in some ways more realistic about it than we are because they didn't have as many options as we do to forestall death. Healthcare wasn't what it was. The you know, setting sail from their port was uh, at sometimes a death sentence. There were everybody looking for how to cope with and handle death. And uh, an an educated city, educated uh, and familiar with philosophers that had gone before several hundred years. And the reigning idea was that there is no hope after death. Uh, let me give you some quotes from philosophers with whom they would have been familiar and the way those philosophers were prone to write about Death, Aeschylus, for one, said, uh, once a man dies, there is no resurrection. Theocritus, this is a rather famous quote, Theocritus about 300 years earlier, there is hope for those who are alive, but those who have died are without hope. Catalyst. When once our brief life sets, there is one perpetual night through which we must sleep. Uh, on their tombstones, uh, grim epitaphs like this one. I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. Uh, a letter archaeologists found uh, from somebody named Irene uh, and Philo, uh, from Irene to someone named Philo, good comfort. I was as sorry and wept over the departed one as I wept for our friend Didymus. And all things whatsoever were fitting, I did and all mine, Epaphroditus and Thermotheon and Philion and Apollonius and Plantus, but nevertheless, against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort ye one another. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. We've done our best. Nothing's going to come of it. Oh, yeah, comfort one another. With what? It's not just uh, the ancients who can be hopeless cynics. I received this letter recently, presumably uh, offering some comfort to us in the recent tragedy we've suffered as a congregation and a, and a community. This man from California wrote this, and this is the only one that I can read publicly. How's that prayer vigil working out for you? First, let me say how sad I was when I read the story that your parishioner was, was kidnapped. I'm sad every time I read the terrible story. It really affects me emotion, emotionally. 
But I'd like to ask you a question that no one in your congregation will ever ask you. What do you seriously think that prayer vigil will accomplish? If you say it's meant to comfort her family by bringing the congregation together, that's an honest and real answer. However, if you tell me or lead anyone else to believe it will somehow help return her to her family unharmed, then you're lying to yourself and everyone else. How do I know this? Because I've seen and read about hundreds of these. They're always tragic. That means one of only three things. There is no God, and you're praying to the air. Or two, this God is powerless to answer your prayers. Or three, God doesn't care. Which one do I know is true? Number one, without a single doubt, 100%, there is no God, period. Ask me why I don't or should I say, no longer believe in Jesus, or whatever it is you think you're praying to, I can give you a hundred reasons easily. There are facts, not beliefs. Beliefs are useless unless they're based in facts. Obviously, he is a profoundly sad man. Angry, disillusioned, apparently at one time claimed to be a Christian. But he allowed tragedy, loss in his own life to overwhelm the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed I don't want you to be ignorant as a man like this is. Not making fun of the man, but saying if you're uninformed, if you're unaware, if you're unrooted in this solid, blessed hope of the resurrection of a Christian in the future, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then this is the kind of tragic despair, this is the kind of cynicism with which you will live your life. This man, at least, is more honest than most of the people we encounter. At least he's done the hard thinking of thinking to the end of not following Christ, of not putting your faith in Christ. This is the end. Others are hoping against hope that, wow, I hope there's something out there. I hope there's something out there. I hope that whatever God there is will have mercy on me. If it's not this Jesus in whom is this blessed hope, then it's no one except the devil and eternal hell that that person will be facing. So we not smugly, but very humbly and gratefully, must praise the Lord that He has revealed to us this blessed hope. And it is to Christians we know. It is to Christians because the passage begins, verse 13, right? I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. This is not directed to every person. 
This is only to those who are identified as having believed on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Those who have this, in the New Testament, a technical word that means we are, we are brothers and sisters. That is, we are siblings coming from the same womb. In this case, the womb of God uh, who bears us anew, in whom we have been born again by the Spirit into Jesus Christ. You know, especially in the South, we can begin to believe that everyone is justified by death. You know, no matter what kind of person someone was while they were living, and if everybody in the room knows this man or this woman was not only not a Christian, they made it clear they weren't Christians. But by the time you get to the funeral, everyone's a Christian. In the South, that can be the tendency. And the, the implication is that, uh, that, uh, that, that justification is not by faith alone through grace, it's by death. That no matter how you live beforehand, if you die, you go to heaven because we can't bear to think of anything else. That's not the point here. Here, I want you to be, in, in, I, I want you to be informed, but I'm only speaking to brothers. I'm only speaking to those who are in Christ, those who are united to his life. That's the very first point that has to be made in this room as well as to the places where this goes. That the only way that you can live forever in the presence of God in Jesus Christ in heaven and not be punished and tormented eternally in hell, the only way is for you to give up on any effort to make yourself right with God, to earn more favor with Him, to give up on the hope that God will judge on a curve, that He's going to think that you did less bad than other people and say, come on in. The only way is by saying, Lord Jesus, I deserve the hell uh, that is prepared for those who try to trust in anything else. And unless your righteousness earned on the cross is substituted for my sin and you, and you give me that righteousness and bear my sin away, then there is no hope for me. Please save me and take my life from now on and make it yours. I will do whatever you command me to do. If that is not your hope this morning, you must know it before we look any farther at this passage because I don't want you to get any false comfort. The only way you can benefit from this passage is to know Jesus Christ in that personal way. One other preliminary comment before the three points here, and that is the importance for every Christian to know, have clearly in your mind, a geography of death. It's what the old folks call the geography of death. That is, what happens when you die? Where do you go? What's going to happen to body and soul respectively? Let me give you our catechism answer and then unpack it a little bit. Uh, in the Presbyterian Church, we have a catechism, you find it in the back of our bulletin, that we urge children, someday we'll get around to this in this church, but we urge children to memorize it so they carry around a theological guide to the Scripture. But one of the questions is, what happens to the souls of believers at death? That's what everybody's wondering. What happens to the souls 
of believers at death? And the answer is, at death, the souls of believers are made uh, perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in the grave until the resurrection. Now there's the whole geography of death gathered from all the scriptures and put into one sentence. I'll repeat it again. What happens to believers at death? The souls of believers are at their dead made perfect in holiness. So the moment the Christian dies, their soul is made perfect, not able to sin any longer, perfectly conformed morally to the image of Jesus Christ. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and, uh, and go to be with the Lord. Their bodies being still united to Christ. Listen, when you're saved, Jesus doesn't save just your soul and say, boy, I can't wait to get rid of that body. Jesus died for your body and soul. That's why you should give thought to burying your body, not to cremating your body. Christians have always treated the body with distinction and with dignity, not with violence, but laying that body to, to, into the ground carefully because that body being still united to Christ is there as a testimony waiting for the resurrection when Jesus will bring that body from the grave make it perfectly whole and join it with the soul and live as a lived body again on a reconstituted earth. There's the geography of death. Souls go to heaven, bodies in the ground, body and soul join to heaven when Jesus returns to live uh, as we are living now, except with the effects of the fall on a remade heaven and earth. So with that in mind with that very important condition of belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, with a clear geography of death, then I want to apply this passage to you beginning in verse 13 with the reassurance that Paul gives us from this passage. <clears throat> uh, Paul says, I don't want you to have, I don't want any harmful secrets to keep you from knowing what you need to know. I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who fall asleep. It's a great comforting word. It's similar to Jesus. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. If it were not so, I would have told you. That's a very important um, uh, epistemological statement. Those of you who studied philosophy, you know, that means, you know, how do we know what we know? How do we know what we're supposed to know? Jesus says, I'm going to assure you, I will tell you what you need to know. And if there is something that you don't need to know, then I won't bother you with it. But everything that you need to know for life and godliness, Paul says in another place, a third place, everything that you need to know for life and godliness is revealed in the Scripture. 
So you may have many questions about what happens after death, what happens to souls after death, when is the resurrection coming and so forth, things that the Bible doesn't answer. If the Bible doesn't answer them, you don't need to worry about them. What a great comfort to hear from Jesus. If it were not so, and, and whatever lies that you have in your mind about such things, I will correct those lies. Those lies have been corrected. So there have not withheld from you anything that you need to know. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. So I'm going to tell you everything that you need to know so that you, while you grieve, you do not grieve hopelessly, you grieve with faith. Second reassurance he gives us is that, that uh, there should be no ultimate fear of death. It is appropriate to fear, fear the process of death because you've never been through it before. We fear that which is unknown. But there must, must not be ultimate fear of death, as in, I know Jesus is holding something out on me that, that there's going to be this absolute terror and there's going to be this form of punishment that I can't anticipate in between death and heaven. No, there should be no ultimate fear. In fact, the, he mocks death, you see, when he says in verse 13, Brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who are asleep. He uses that word uh, later as well to describe death. Sleep, or the Greek word koimao, which is the root word for cemetery. Cemetery was a, was a Christian invention to describe graveyards and literally calling them sleeping places. Christians were communicating by the way they buried bodies, most of them in the, before the Civil War, most bodies were buried near the church so that there was this holistic, this, uh, this continuous tapestry of you bring someone into the, bring a baby into the church, you baptize them into the family, they live their life there worshiping, and they die, and they are carried outside the walls of the church and laid to rest in the sleeping place. Because they're only sleeping there until Jesus raises them from the dead. It was in the Civil War that we had so many bodies to deal with that the funeral industry came about and somebody had to deal with the mass carnage and cemeteries get removed from churches. They become sterile places, separate places out of necessity, but, but divorced in many ways from the church and this idea of the continuity of a Christian's existence from coming into the church, worshiping in the church, going out and onto the grounds of the church and waiting with the whole community for the resurrection. But Paul says, the, 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 when, when a Christian dies, it's like sleep. It's not the ultimate end. They are waiting, they are resting, awaiting the coming of Jesus to raise their bodies from the ground. One word about grieving. He says, I do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Some Christians stop at, I don't want you to grieve. That's far from the biblical picture. There's a lot of grieving over death. Even our Lord grieved over Lazarus at the tomb. He wept. He wept angrily. He wept twice. It is appropriate to weep at death. 
because, as Paul says, death is still an enemy. It's a defeated enemy, but it's not a finally defeated enemy. Death still rips people from us in an untimely way. Death is still an agonizing loss, an agonizing process. So we grieve. It's appropriate to grieve. The only condition is we don't grieve as those who have no hope. This poor man who wrote me this letter is grieving, but he's grieving without hope. We grieve, we grieve with hope. And we grieve in victorious hope because death for the Christian becomes not a defeat, but because Christ has conquered death, He makes death His servant. He puts death as a kind of stepping stool for us so that death no longer is something by which we are defeated, but rather becomes a stepping stool for us to get into heaven. See the transformation? That death, far from uh, defeating us and, re- and, and taking away from our hope, he puts, he puts death down as, as if on all fours and we step on its back to get into heaven. We have a larger catechism in the Presbyterian Church and I want to read you a question and answer from that one. <clears throat> death being the wages of sin, why are not the righteous delivered from death? seeing all their sins are forgiven in Christ. If all our sins are forgiven in Christ and death is the ways of sin, why do we still have to die? Listen to this answer. The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day, and even in death, even in death, are delivered from the sting and curse of it, so that although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery and to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. I can give you eight passages, nine passages that they deliver, that they footnote this catechism question with to make that beautiful point. Second major idea I want to get across to you is in verses 14 and 15. It is that we are able to encourage one another with these words, not only because they're reassuring, but because of the resurrection, because of Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection guarantees ours. For since we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Incidentally, another geographical comment made here that, uh, that, that if, we, if, we, if people are alive, if Christians are alive, when Jesus comes, they will have to wait their place in line because Jesus' first priority will be to raise the bodies of those who have died, join them to their souls, and uh, join them with Him in, uh, in the sky, in the clouds, and then it'll be our time to go. It's a, it's a touching honor of those who have died in Christ. But I want to make this theological point about Jesus' resurrection and its impact on us. 
You see, we, in, at Easter, I think we often miss a very powerful theological implication of Jesus' resurrection. We tend to think, especially on Easter, that uh, we celebrate the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, which proves that He was the Son of God. And that's true. But we tend to leave it there, that it was a miracle, a miracle of miracles that proved that He was divine. Well, it does that, but Jesus' resurrection was as necessary to our salvation as His death on the cross. He was still working for us in the resurrection. If He had died on the cross and not been raised to life, maybe our sins would have been forgiven, but nothing else would have been, uh, nothing of, of the rest of what we need in salvation would have been sealed to us. In fact, it's not even true that our sins would have been forgiven. That's the point the Bible makes with Jesus' resurrection. Let me prove it to you. Uh, here he alludes to, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. I want you to be confident that you will be raised to life in the future. Why? Because Jesus died and was raised to life. He doesn't say, don't, he didn't say you, you can be confident that you're going to be raised to life again because Jesus was. He says because he died and was raised to life. Why does he say that? Because his resurrection proves our justification. Paul writes in, in uh, John chapter 4, uh, he, was, uh, he, he died and was raised to life because of our justification. Here's what happened. Jesus lived a perfect life, right? He didn't sin, never sinned. Thought, word, or deed. He had to live that perfect life in our place, but also to be the perfect substitute. He hangs on the cross and He says, Father, uh, uh, why have you forsaken me? At that point, God made Him sin. God put all of our sins on Him. He became a sinner. And after all of our sins were put on Him, He became a sinner. That's when He died. Jesus never would have died had He not become sin in our place. The wages of sin is death. He never, had the, never paid the wages of sin. He never had sin to pay the wages for. He became sin in our place. And when He became sin in our place, He died. Because that is, the, that is what happens to sinners. But when He went to the grave, when He faced the fires of hell, the righteousness of His life was substituted for the sin He became. The righteous, perfect record of His life was substituted for the sin He became. And when that substitution was made, death had no... No, uh, no charge over him, had no power over him anymore. He sprang to life. Death cannot hold the righteous. So when Jesus justified that sin he became by his life, death had to release him. And when it released him, it proved not only that he was righteous, but we had become righteous too. He was raised to life because of our justification. 
When you celebrate Easter, that's one thing you must celebrate. Jesus was raised to life as the proof positive that He had done what He promised He would do with my sins, justified them. Not only that, we need to be adopted and sanctified and glorified. Jesus, by His resurrection, was, became the adopted Son of God. When He was on the cross, when He became sin, He was orphaned from the Father. He became an orphan outside the family with us. But when He was justified, when He was raised to life, Paul says in Romans 1, Jesus, who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power in His resurrection from the dead. Jesus is our Lord. The resurrection proved He was adopted. And because He was adopted, we were adopted. We need to be sanctified. We need to be made holy as He is. He did that as well in His resurrection. Romans chapter 8, If Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The only way you are becoming holy, the only way you are considered sanctified, is because Jesus has earned it and He has been raised from the dead in order to make you sanctified. And then you need to be glorified. You need to be perfectly conformed to the moral image of Christ, and that is promised in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we're being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Everything that you need, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, were all accomplished by the resurrection of of Christ, and all of that is pressed into this pregnant passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and 18, when he says as a matter of shorthand, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with, those, with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, final point, reunion. Verses 16 and 17, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We don't have to get too specific with those allusions to Old Testament history, but, the, the, but in short, it proves Christ is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign King over all things. And just like God in the Old Testament said, when it's time to break camp and move on, the trumpet would blow. He would say, arise, let's go, follow the cloud and the pillar. We're going on to the promised land. He said the day will come when that same archangel who has been protecting the people of God from spiritual and physical enemies throughout redemptive history, he will give a shout along with the shout and trumpet of Jesus Christ. And they'll say, get up, it's time to go. The battle is over. Come on into the promised land. The dead... In Christ will rise first. Those bodies will be raised to life, joined with souls to meet Him in the air. The rest who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so they will be with the Lord forever. The promise is not 
only for us individually. We will be with the Lord forever, but we'll be with all other Christians forever. It's a very effective evangelistic entree to say to those you love, I want to be with you forever. There's only one way we're going to be with each other forever. It's for you to have Christ as your Lord and Savior the same He is for me. We want to be caught up in the Lord, with the Lord, and with others dying in Him forever. And that is the promise that He says in verse 18, comforts us and by which we encourage one another. I don't know if I've told you this story before or not, but I like it so much I don't care. I like to keep telling it. It comes from Joseph Stoll, who was past president of Moody Bible College. He's a pastor now. Joseph Stoll said he was, he was uh, touring the Good Shepherd's Home, or the Shepherd's Home, which is a, a home in the Midwest for, for Down Syndrome kids. And, um, and adults. And uh, it's Christian home. And the, the guide told Dr. Stoll, he said, uh, you know, uh, we teach our, our kids here the gospel. And we teach them the good news of the resurrection that someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to restore their bodies and they will be whole again. They will be whole. They'll be they'll be." They'll be healed. And we tell them that when he comes, he's going to come from the east, he's going to part the sky, trumpet's going to sound, voice of the archangel, and he's going to come and he's going to take us home and he's going to make us perfect. Dr. Stoll, he said, you know what our greatest maintenance problem is in this home? Dirty windows. because the residents are constantly pressing their fingers and faces against the eastern windows and asking, is he coming? Is he coming today? Can you see him yet? Oh, that's the way we all need to be living. Dirty windows. Oh, Lord. Come, when are you going to split that sky? Set us free from all of this. Set our loved ones free from their illnesses. Raise those dead from the graves. Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come. Come quickly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that whenever we study your word, it never returns to you void. It never returns without accomplishing the purpose for which you send it. So we claim that promise today, that uh, you would accomplish your purposes in us, and that this day you would accomplish your purposes not only in us, but through us, that we would be vibrant, contagious, conveyors 
of this blessed hope to those around us, both Christian and non-Christian. Oh, Lord, help us to encourage one another with these words. Thank you for the devotion of these men to the Word of God. May they be blessed today. In Jesus' name, amen.